so most of the time you'll see me up here. Uh, if you're wondering where Sean Myers is this morning, um, you could be praying for him. He is, pre- he is uh, preaching at the Tempe congregation all four services today, so he's going to find out what it really means to work today, so that's, uh, that's exciting. I love that last song we did. I know it's a, an old hymn, Rock of Ages, but it brings back special memories for me. Uh, when I was at North High School several decades ago in the 70s, um, one, of the, one of the most popular teachers there was a guy named Ron Scott. He was a government teacher there, and uh, I knew him all four years there. He was also the baseball coach there. And um, he used to walk through the hallways of the school singing Rock of Ages all four years that I was there. It's like he got a song in his head and he couldn't get, you know, have you ever done that? Well, he, for four years, he could not get rid of Rock of Ages, but he'd walk through uh, just singing that all the time. So when I became a Christian when I was 27, I knew one Christian song and that was it. And, and, and I have Mr. Scott to thank for that. So wherever you are, buddy, thanks for that. A couple quick announcements. Um, we do have a Connect class today during the 11 o'clock service. Uh, Eugene, who read the, the uh, scripture this morning, is going to be leading it downstairs. So if you are new to Redemption and, and want to find out more about us, uh, uh, go ahead and head down there. You don't have to be signed up. Um, and there are donuts down there. So uh, you might want to head down there. And then a um, couple other things real quick. Uh, next Sunday is our annual church picnic. So 4 o'clock over at Pierce Park. Um, which is at 46th Street in Oak, just across from the uh, Costco. And uh, we'll be there from 4 until sundown. There's going to be a food truck there, short leash. And uh, we're going to provide the drinks and, and the beverages. And so it'll be a great time. We'll probably play Frisbee football and a bunch of other stuff. There was a lot of stuff going on last year when we did it, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, and then finally, I uh, want to remind you one more time, uh, and I'll remind you again next week. Uh, March 2nd, Sunday, March 2nd, we are going to be doing baby dedication. So I've had some people already signing up for that. You need to just contact Stephanie Shoemate in the office, and she'll make sure that you're all set for that. Uh, so you can email her. Uh, her email is in the bulletin that you received today. And if you're still not sure, you can, you can always email me too. That would be fine. Uh, we'll get you set up though, okay? Let me pray, and then we are going to get into Romans chapter 8, and I would encourage you to turn there or, or get onto Romans 8 on your, on your app, uh, on your phone. Uh, we're going we're gonna to be very deep into that today. Uh, God, we pray uh, that um, you would open our eyes and our, and our uh, understanding, uh, our hearts to this text. Uh, it, there is a lot going on in this text, so I pray even for me that that I would uh, be able to teach it and, and proclaim it effectively uh, by your power. Uh, I pray that <clears throat> you would um, be preparing everybody for what you have to say to us today. This is, a, uh, this is an interesting text to wrestle with. And so uh, I just pray your blessing upon us as we do this and that ultimately you would be glorified as we dig deeper into what Romans 8 has to say. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in our, I don't know, sixth or seventh week in Romans chapter 8, and it's been great. Um, I, I, I say all the time that, that uh, God gives uh, preachers great material to be able to talk about, and Romans 8 is, is just, uh, it preaches itself, I think. I will tell you, though, this paragraph we look at today, these eight or nine verses, because I'm going to add a verse as well, uh, there is a lot going on here. There are so many questions that we could ask of the text and there's really, frankly, no way that we're going to be able to cover it in about 40 minutes. And so 
Uh, if there are areas where you were, as you came in, you were hoping and anticipating that we would go deeper on, and I didn't go deep on that, and I went deep on something else, I would just encourage you to get after it in your redemption communities and, and study it there or, or, or get some commentaries yourself. There's helps on the internet as well, and, and, and dig deep yourself. But um, we have a lot to do here, and we're going to tackle it as best we can. I want to reread it again, but I want to read it this time, including verse 17, which is the verse right before this paragraph that leads us into what Paul is going to be talking about in this paragraph, but there's a differentiation that we must make as we read this so that we're all understanding about what kind of suffering Paul it is that, uh, it is that Paul is talking about uh, in this section of, of Romans 8, but also I want to read this paragraph sort of asking some of these questions of the text that, that we might be looking at uh, today. So Romans chapter 8, starting with... Uh, Verse 17, here's what Paul writes. Now, uh, Paul, in the, in the paragraph before, as we get to 17, he's talking about our adoption by God. And we talked about that last week. And, and, and uh, he says, uh, right before verse 17, he says, listen, the Holy Spirit gives witness to our spirit of this fact that we are adopted by God. We are children of God. And then he says this, and if you remember last week, I said, why does Paul rain on our adoption parade so quickly with this, with this particular sentence? He says, and if children, if we are children of God, which we are, then heirs. We're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So Paul introduces again this topic of suffering in verse 17. But the suffering he's talking about in verse 17 is actually a little bit different than what he talks about in verse 18, which is the first verse of the next paragraph. And I'm going to explain that in a minute after we read through it. Uh, all of, of paragraph 18 through 25 in, in, involves all kinds of suffering, but there is a differentiation that he's making there, and we need to make sure we understand that. Then he says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's, there's something out there in the future that we, as Christ followers, are looking forward to. But then he moves from us to the creation. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Well, well, who are the sons of God, and how are they going to be revealed, and why is creation talking anyway? So you might ask those questions. Those are legitimate questions. And then verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Uh, who subjected creation to futility? A lot of people would say it was Adam, but no, that's not quite right. There's a nuance there because it was, suggest, it was subjected in hope. God subjected it in hope, and we'll go a little bit deeper on that. Verse 21, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's this connection, apparently, between the creation and, and the children of God and the sons of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth. There, now he introduces childbirth, interesting, until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, now it's back to us, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, 
Wait, I thought we already were adopted. I don't understand that. The redemption of our bodies. Oh, it has something to do with our bodies. Okay. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Who hopes for something that you, that you see tangibly, that you have? But, it, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So, there is a lot going on there. So let me first explain the, the, the difference between the suffering in 17 and the suffering of 18. And I began to talk about this last week. The suffering in verse 17 has specifically to do with being an heir of Jesus Christ. If you're Christ, if, if, if God has saved you through Jesus Christ and you are his son or daughter, you are a child of, of his, no matter what your age is, uh, you, you need to understand that there's going to be some specific, special, peculiar, unique suffering that you're going to go through that the rest of the world does not go through. Everybody in this world suffers, no matter what. All of us suffer because of what Paul talks about in verses 18 through 25, the corruption, the fall, the sin. We've been subjected to this futility by, by the original sin of Adam and Eve and God and God then subjected the creation and us to this curse because of the disobedience of, of Adam and Eve. So everybody suffers, including creation, metaphorically groans with its suffering. But if you are also a Christ follower, understand you're also going to suffer for your faith. You're going to be called out for your faith. You're going to be mocked for your faith. Now, in America, what that generally means is that your family might make fun of you when you go to some family function and they're not Christians. You might have friends who walk away from you or turn their backs on you. You might have a situation in a workplace where you are specifically marginalized or turned down for a promotion because people know that you are a Christian. You're suffering for your faith. Uh, at school, you, you will get shut down. You'll get mocked. You'll get ridiculed at school. I remember when I was working on my communication degree at ASU, it was really rough. There was one other uh, uh, biblical born-again Christian, I have to make that qualification, in my cohort out there, Alan Mickelson, and, and we really hung together and prayed together. Uh, we, we were a part of what was going on, but we also knew that we were, we were subjected, subjected to a particular kind of scrutiny that a lot of other people wouldn't be, and that we w may not get as many opportunities because of, our, because of our faith and because of our stand about Christ and, and Christianity. And understand, we, we all will experience that as Christians, but you also have to understand that it goes much deeper than that in most places. There are places in the world where you suffer for your faith by being executed, by being martyred. And Jesus and Paul and John and James and everybody in the New Testament who writes in the New Testament, they do not pull any punches about the fact that if you choose to follow Christ, you are going to have to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him, and that they're going to, you're going to be persecuted for it in some manner, shape, or form. You may not even know when you're being persecuted for your faith, but you will. You will suffer for your faith as an heir of Christ. So that's that specific suffering there. We talked about the, uh, how last week how as an heir you bear two different weights. You, you bear the weight of privilege, which is marvelous. Uh, we get the privilege of being 
uh, children of God and, and participating in the resurrection and having peace with God. But we also bear the weight of burden, the, the responsibility and the cost that comes along with, with being an, an heir. And, and what Paul is desperately trying to get across, because we all run into this from time to time, what Paul is trying to get across is, look, everybody wants the weight of privilege, but few people are willing to accept the weight of the burden of being heirs. We want the benefits of being with Jesus, but we don't want any of the costs. And he says, there's going to be a cost to this, a specific cost to you that people who don't know Jesus will not experience. Okay? But then, he goes to verse 18, where he introduces this new idea, not necessarily new to him or, or to the Bible, but, but in this flow of the argument where he says, look, everything is suffering as well. There's general suffering as well as a result of the fall, which we read about in Genesis chapter 3. And he says something very interesting, and he says this in other places in Scripture as well. He says, for I consider, and that word in the Greek consider means I've thoroughly evaluated this. I, I didn't just look at it and blow by it. I have, I have spent a lot of time in evaluating this. I consider that the present sufferings that we are going through, whether they're general suffering, sufferings or the specific sufferings for our faith in Jesus Christ, are not worth being compared to the coming glory that's going to be revealed to us when we make it to the new Jerusalem. Literally, these sufferings, it's not even worthy to make the comparison because they're, they're so different. And he, and he hammers this for us. And I want to show you, you don't have to turn there, but you can mark it if you're taking notes. I want to just read to you a couple of texts that help you to understand that Paul really knows what he's talking about here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. I read this at the end of the message last week to kind of get us ready for this. He writes this. It's a very similar text to what he's doing here. So, he says in verse 16, we do not lose heart. We have hope. And again, this text is also about hope. We have hope. Though our outer self is wasting away, we're all destined to bag, sag, and drag. That's essentially what it says in the Greek, okay? All right. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self, by the power of the gospel, is being renewed day by day. For this, and here's how he describes suffering in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For this light momentary affliction. Now, I know there's suffering in this room. I know. And, and, and I would never presume to describe your suffering as light momentary affliction. I know it's painful suffering. But what Paul is trying to do is help us to understand that, that even though it's painful and hard, there's a future that's way better. And, and to keep your eyes fixed on that. She says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Boyce, I said last week, says the path to glory is actually through suffering. And Paul says it here. It's preparing for us a, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're wasting away. They're perishing. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, you want to know what Paul's light momentary afflictions were like? When, when he describes his suffering, what is he talking about? Well, we got a little passage here. 
in 2 Corinthians later on, chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. Listen to what he says. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Anybody ever been flogged? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, literally thrown down in in a gully, and people were heaving huge two-handed stones on him. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. I was in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from de- Gentiles, danger from, uh, in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. There was a lot of danger around Paul. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, apart from all of that, There's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. What Paul describes there is not only the general, but also the specific suffering that he as a follower of Christ and as a member of the human race has experienced. But even in all of that, which is much more than any of us in this room, most of us in this room will ever sniff, it's certainly more than I'm ever going to sniff, I'll tell you that. Even in the midst of that, Paul says the coming glory wins. And then you say, well, what is this glory? Okay, now we get into some interesting discussion because actually, although a lot of people have claimed to define and describe this coming glory, it's kind of tough to describe, it's kind of tough to define because none of us have have ever actually experienced it before. We haven't experienced it. But some would say this, this is what, how you might say the coming glory, it's It's the weight, radiance, and magnificence of God being in his presence and things the way they're supposed to be. Wouldn't you like things in the world to be the way they're supposed to be? Don't we all pine for that? Don't we all long for that? Whatever that looks like, it's got to be better than the way it is now. But again, I, I, I think that Paul would come along and say, what you're describing really fails to do justice to what this coming glory uh, looks like. And I want to say this too. This is really important. I I want you to understand, Paul isn't minimizing suffering. Nobody is trying to minimize suffering at all. He's not trying, this is not Paul going, look, it's no big deal, just suck it up. He's not doing that at all. He's not a fan of suffering either. If he had his choice, he wouldn't want to be stoned and shipwrecked and flogged and all of that stuff. He's just trying to keep, a, a, keep a, the hope that we have in front of us and give us some perspective. Uh, this is one way of looking at it. The suffering that we experience now as human beings and as followers of Christ and the glory that is to come that we look forward to uh, occur in three different areas of our life, three different parts. They are intensity, location, and duration. So the, the intensity, even, and we can break it down this way, even in the intensity, the, the coming glory is better. I'm not saying that suffering isn't heavy. It is very heavy. But the coming glory is much heavier because it, it's God's glory, and we are his glory. Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that he wants to know Jesus, and he, and he wants to share in his sufferings so that he might do whatever he needs to to be able to obtain the resurrection because he says that's 
the goal. That's the telos. That's, that's what has the most intensity, and it's good intensity. And then there's location. Location is simply uh, the comparison of our disintegrating body today, the bodies we have now that are, dis- that are disintegrating, and the coming redeemed body, the coming resurrected body, the coming body that will be conformed to Christ. That's going to be better. And then the last area, duration. The duration of our suffering is temporal. It's transient. It, 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 it has an ending. There's an ending date to it. We may not know when it is, but there is certainly an ending date. And whatever that date is, 70 years, 90 years, 50 years, 120 years, whatever it is, that ending date by comparison to eternity it can't even hold a candle. You're talking about eternity when the glory, when we experience the glory. So even in the duration, it doesn't compare. This is what prompted Tom Schrader to say that famous line, listen, no matter how bad it gets, it can only last a lifetime. It's like good news that makes you cry. You know what I mean? And not in a necessarily good way. But But here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, I know suffering is tough, but suffering suffers in comparison to the coming glory. And and then he goes in to this section of Scripture, this this paragraph, and he says, he talks about the futility of the corruption that creation was subjected to. What does that mean? Well, it means that creation and us, but creation is not able to do what it was originally purposed to do. Creation doesn't work the way it's supposed to because of the corruption of sin. Literally, that word uh, corruption there means the breakdown of organic matter. Uh, when in the first century, as they, as somebody would, when somebody died and they would watch the body decompose, it was this Greek word that we translate as corruption that they would say, that they would use to describe the decomposition of that body. In other words, the body is now betraying because it's dead. It's now betraying the person, the soul. So creation is not supposed to betray us. This is what Paul is saying. And creation knows somehow that it's not supposed to betray us. It's not supposed to break down. But it does because it's been corrupted by sin, just like you and I. We break down. And who subjected it? It's not Adam, though it seems like it. At first blush, you might go, well, that was Adam. It was Adam's fault. No? Okay, Eve, it was her fault. No. It was God because of what Adam and Eve did. God's, God's decree of the curse of corruption as a consequence of Adam's sin, he did that because he had to, but it says that it was done in hope. That's an interesting little thing. It was done in hope. It was always done in light of the hope of the coming Messiah. You see that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God is already starting with the curses, and he can't help himself. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he gives us the first messianic verse, the first promise of the coming Messiah who is going to turn things around for us, and that would be Jesus Christ. But here's what Paul is describing about the corruption of creation. It's Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. It says this, God says to Adam, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
God, God had no choice but to do this. He's the one that subjected creation to this curse, this curse of futility and corruption because of what Adam did. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on Romans 8, says this about this issue right here. He says, the animal world was invaded by fear and violence. The loveliest scenes in nature, while often beautiful, are also witness to bloody horrors. Floods, hurricanes, droughts, tornadoes, blights, avalanches, and earthquakes all stock the earth. And of course, the sin of man merely exacerbates the disharmony. So we have an overview now of what's happening here, and I want to pull out four keys as we finish up this message to this text that I see here. And here they are. Number one, those of us who know Jesus, this is a, this is a text for those of us who know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, hang in there. We'll have something to say to you towards the end because we want you to hear this first. But number one, those of us who know Jesus, we long we long, it, the word literally means a craving desire, a craving desire. We long for release, redemption, and restoration. From what? I'll explain in a minute. Point number two, key number two, is that creation also longs. Creation also longs for redemption, release, and restoration. Number three, groan. Creation and us, we all groan. And number four, both wait eagerly with patience. Seems like a paradox, but, but we wait eagerly but patiently for this redemption to come. And here's the big idea today. Everything is broken. Everything is broken. But everything will be made new. This is Paul's promise in this passage here. So, number one. You and I, those that know, who know Jesus, we have a longing in our body, our soul, our spirit, and in our mind. And what we long for is release from the bondage of this corruption, for redemption from what sin has done to us and to everything else, and for restoration. We want things to be the way they're supposed to be. We long for the coming glory. So, Earlier I said we, we struggle to describe this coming glory. So why do we long for something, as I said, that we've never really experienced and really can't even articulate? Well, I think the explanation lies here. I'll do the best I can with it. This, is, this gets a little tricky, but, but, but I think that we can drill down on this. First of all, we are spiritual beings. God has created us as spiritual beings. That's very clear from the text in Genesis, and all throughout the Bible. We're spiritual beings. As spiritual beings, we were created to worship something. We're supposed to worship God. And, and in fact, God set it up that way in paradise. And, and he gave them only one restriction, and that was that, uh, the fruit on the tree that's in the middle of the garden. That's the only restriction he gave them. 
And by observing that, that was an act of worship. There were other acts of worship too, but by observing that, that restriction, that law, if you want to call it that, that was actually an act of worship. So we're, we're created as spiritual beings and so we're going to worship, but, but our worship goes awry because of sin. Eve and Adam were deceived and so they chose to worship that which was created rather than the creator. They worshiped the fruit, the forbidden fruit. It was an act of worship when they went and ate the fruit. Do you understand that? It was an act of worship. They were just worshiping the wrong thing at that time. So our trouble comes when, when, we, when we look to items that are created to fulfill us the way God is supposed to fulfill us. And items that were created can never do what we want them to do when it comes to our desire to be fulfilled by God because they were never purposed to do that. Yes, they're supposed to give us pleasure. Yes, we're supposed to enjoy them. Yes, we should utilize them and we should create culture and we should make things and we should exchange and we should have money and relationships and sex and, and all of this stuff, yet all of that stuff. But the minute it takes God's place, then we've made that God. We have disordered creation and we're asking creation to do something that it was never intended to do and never created to do. And so this longing that we have to worship the right thing that will fulfill us goes void. If it's created, it just won't fulfill us. C.S. Lewis says it this way. It's, uh, uh, he, he calls it a desire all humans have, but a desire for which no human happiness can fulfill because happiness is based on these created things. Like I said, it's, it's Romans chapter 1. It's a disordering of the created order. Uh, Boyce has a theory. He says, listen, I'll go, even so, I'll go farther and say... We also desire this specifically because we once did have it. We once did have this glory. Not you and I, not us, but our, our ancient first parents had it. The human condition did have it. Adam and Eve, they had it. And, and so the way sin is imputed to us by Adam and Eve, Boyce theorizes that this sense, this idea of something better was also imputed to us. It's, it's here. It's deep within us. But we can't articulate it because we've never actually experienced it. But our parents have experienced it. But when we go to heaven and we get that glory restored, we'll, we'll finally experience it and it will finally be the way things were supposed to be. And then there's one other thing from this key that I want to I mention. You see that reference in verse 23 to the fact that you and I as believers in Christ, we do have the first fruits in the Holy Spirit. We have the first fruits in the Holy Spirit. And what, what does that mean? And, and, and what does it have to do with this intense longing that we have? It simply means that because the Spirit is with us now, we know, based on His testimony to us in verse 16, that He testifies to this all the time, that our longing is not in vain, that there will be a fulfillment of this glory someday, and it's not useless to long because He's with us now. 
And we need to understand there's a differentiation. Some people see that and they go, oh, we have the first fruit of the Spirit. That must mean the, Holy, uh, the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Not quite. That's a result of having the first fruit of the Holy Spirit. But the first fruit is the Holy Spirit. It's Him. We have the Spirit now with us. The Holy Spirit himself was given to us at conversion and it's the first fruit of God's work in our lives now. And so the Spirit, by his power, gives us a foretaste of this future. It's it's like a depositor down payment that guarantees the fullness of what is to come in the new Jerusalem. But we still can't even manage to fathom what that's going to be like. But here's what it also means. It also means that the first fruit is also the church. And the reason is because the church is not these buildings or any buildings anywhere. The church is the people who are in it. The the Christ followers who are in it. The converted souls who are in the church. That's the church. And you are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit resides in you. So the first fruit is also the church. And so the church as a first fruit of the coming glory What we're supposed to do is be a community that witnesses to the beauty and glory that will come for those in Christ. And we do that not by seeking to judge and condemn the world, but we do that by engaging and loving the world and and being used by God as agents of transformation and justice. And one one of our motivations for doing this is that we long for the redemption and restoration of all things. So that's the first key. Here's the second key. The world, the creation, also longs for this deliverance from corruption, sin, and futility. Verse 19 says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation waits with eager longing. The Greek phrase there literally means, and I have terrible balance, but I want to try and show you this. It literally means that creation is standing on its tiptoes, trying to see. Have you ever seen a shorter person in the back of a crowd trying to see what's going on up there and they're, they're doing this. That's exactly what these Greek words are trying to describe. That creation is doing about how eagerly it waits. And I know, here's a question I have. You know, how does an inanimate object like the world have these longings? Well, Paul does this to make a point. Creation is personified. It's a, it's a literary, common literary technique. In Isaiah 24.4, It says that the earth mourns and withers because of the corruption of sin and how it's robbed the creation of its vitality. But you can also look at Psalm 65 for more personification, but in a positive way. It's it's a wonderful contrast because it shows that the earth really loves God. The psalmist writes this, The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. And and creation longs because they're waiting for the redemption of the sons of God to be revealed to them. Well, who are the sons of God? It's the believers in Christ. Those who have been adopted. We talked about that last week. It's us who are in Christ. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. They're still waiting to be revealed? I don't understand that. What does that mean? Aren't we already adopted? You said last week, Frank, we're already adopted. Haven't we already been revealed? Yes and no. In in the Christian community, there's this thing that a lot of people talk about called the already and not yet. And this is part of that. The already and not yet. 
we've already been saved. When we get later into Romans, we're going to find that Paul speaks in terms of having already been called and glorified and justified. We already are. He uses the past tense Greek verbs there. We are saved, but there's still more to come. It's not completed yet. We don't have our redeemed bodies yet. We don't have the resurrected bodies yet. We're not living in a place where things are the way they're supposed to be. So we long, and creation longs, for the telos, the goal, the end. We long for heaven with our new bodies and no more suffering or crying or pain or sin. And so what creation, what Paul is saying is creation longs to see our resurrection, our heavenly bodies that are part of the second coming of Christ because then creation can look and see our resurrected bodies and it will know that it's going to be restored and healed. That's why it waits to see us revealed that way. But until then, even though we have the first fruits to live by now, creation, all the creation has is the future to anticipate. It, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit like preparing for the reading of a will for somebody's estate. We know something's coming, but it won't come until something else happens. And, and, and notice there's a hierarchy, apparently, that Paul sets up here First us, then the creation. And that's where creation's hope lies, is it lies in us and the redemption of our bodies. So there's this tension that you and I live in. The tension is that is really three parts. The world is God's. The world is not now all it's created to be. It's disordered, and the world will be renewed by God. And we live in the tension in that middle part. We live in the, with the realization as Christians that everything is broken, but everything will be made new. And that middle part where the tension is, which is where we live now, the world is not all that it was created to be, the world is disordered, helps us to understand two really important things about our life and the world, and here they are. Number one, we should not be surprised when things go wrong. And number two, we should not put our hope in this present world. We shouldn't be worshiping created things. And that leads us to key number three, which is both therefore grown. It's interesting, the Greek word that Paul uses for grown is used six times in the New Testament, and three of them are right here in these verses, if you include verse 26, which we look at next week. And the, and, and the word grown literally means an inarticulate guttural utterance. Anybody here ever had an inarticulate guttural utterance? And... and and you might say, well, what are some of the reasons that we groan? I, I know that as I'm reading stuff, there's, that question is asked quite often. And the answer is many. And, and understand that Paul's not talking about the way most of us groan on a day-to-day -day basis with just the minor inconveniences of life. It's not like uh, we groan because of bad traffic, we groan because of slow service, we groan because of a hangnail, we grow, groan because of some basic inconvenience. He's not talking about that groaning. He would classify that groaning as whining. He's talking about serious groaning. We groan because of the ravages of sin to our lives and to others, and we see it, and it devastates us. We groan because we see potential go unfulfilled. We, we groan because we waste our lives, if we're honest. We groan with disappointment in ourselves and, and in others. We groan in bereavement and sorrow and loss due to crisis, tragedy, and injustice. 
We groan because of our physical limitations due to corruption and sin. So Sean Myers groans because he's not in the National Basketball Association. We groan because of physical and emotional pain. One author writes this, Life consists of a great deal of groaning. It says, groaning like the pains of childbirth? Yeah. Yeah, Paul uses that metaphor because it was the strongest pain that they knew of in that day. If you ever wanted to compare something in the first century to the worst pain you could experience, it was always compared to childbirth. And, and the irony is that what, what the earth and what we want desperately, what creation, we want to be delivered. We want to be delivered. It's, it's why moms, and my wife is a mother, two children, it's why they go through what they go through to have a baby. It's really hard, but it's worth it. You ever notice how <clears throat> parents often, if not always, have a picture right after the delivery of the mother and the baby right here. Sometimes the husband is in the picture, sometimes he's not. Maybe he helped in some way. We don't know. But there's the picture of the mother with the baby, and the mother's face is just glowing. It's radiant. And thankfully, those are the pictures that we show. I've never, and if you're one of those husbands, please, you need counseling, but I've never seen a husband whip out a picture from the delivery and go, check this out, man. Her agony was awesome. No, it's the picture of, what comes after? And, and here's what I want you to see. What, what the mother is celebrating is not that the pain is over, though it is. What the mother is celebrating is the new life. Because what has come is better than what she went through. That's the picture Paul is trying to paint for us here. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Do you understand that he, he wasn't on the cross going, man, I can't wait until this is over with. He was on the cross thinking about the joy that was set before him because he was redeeming his people. So we groan in eager expectation of the glory that's coming. So we long, creation longs, we both groan. Last point four, we both groan, but we also wait eagerly and with patience. Eagerly and patiently. In other words, our waiting is not passive. We are purveyors of the kingdom of God, which means we're on mission. We are active. The church is supposed to be active and on mission and outward focused. Do we take care of people in the church? Of course we do, but that's not all. We also are outward focused. And what we're waiting for is for God's work to be completed, for the second advent, for Jesus to come again, and for the coming glory. But in the meantime, we are people on mission. We are loving others. We are serving others. We're building relationships. And that word for patience at the end of this paragraph is the same word that you find in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, when Paul says <clears throat> that, that we not only rejoice in the peace we have with God and in the grace that we stand with God, but we also rejoice in what? Our sufferings. Because we know our suffering produces, and here's the word, endurance, hupomene. 
It's the same word, the same Greek word. It means endurance, perseverance, steadfastness, and patience. It's the same word. It's both sides of that patience and persistence coin. It's both sides of the, of the long-suffering and the, and, the, and the coin that says you, you also have to persevere. It's the same word. It's the same word that James uses in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, when he says, Consider it all joy, beloved, when you experience trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith will produce what? Hupomene, steadfastness, patience, perseverance, endurance. He's saying, stay with it. And so we wait eagerly, we wait actively, but we do it with patience, with perseverance, with long-suffering, knowing that God has perfect timing. And we wait because we have hope. This gives us hope. And you know, it's a different kind of hope that we usually talk about. It's, it's not a hope that can ever be dashed. It's not, it's not like, it's not, I hope I get into grad school. Well, you may not. I hope I get the promotion. You may not. I hope she says yes. She may not. It's, it's not a hope like that. It's not a hope that hinges on certain factors aligning and you being good at manipulating a situation. It's not a hope whose completion is ever in doubt. It's not a hope that you and I would fret about, but rather it's an attitude, an understanding of hope because we've placed our hope in the content that can deliver, and that is Jesus Christ, the creator of this world. Our hope is in Him. And, and, and He guarantees this is going to happen. And He seals that guarantee with His resurrection, the miracle of the resurrection. It, it's a little bit like watching a championship game of some sort, having already known what the outcome is. Due to time zone differences or a delayed tape or whatever. Kind of like, I guess, how Seattle watched the Super Bowl this year. It's like they knew that it was going to go that way. Yeah. I got some groans on that one. Yeah, I know. This eager, patient waiting and hope is because what we're now enduring can't realistically be compared to what is coming, even though it's painful. Uh, again, back to Kent Hughes. He says this. This is really good. He says, you and I can take a thimble of water and we can stand at the beach and compare it to the Pacific Ocean, Right? Pacific Ocean, a lot of water, thimble of water, very little water. We can make that comparison, yet you and I can't compare the coming glory that we're going to receive with our present sufferings. That's what Paul is trying to say here. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Some of you know this quote. It, It really is helpful, I think. He writes this. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would deem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He's saying that when we chase these created things to fulfill us the way God is supposed to create us, we think we have strong desires. He's saying, no, it's evidence that your desire is too weak to place your longing into those things, to worship those things. He says, Our desires are not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. It's like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the beach. And that hope, we're told 
in verse 25 is what saves us. It's the gospel. It's the promise of God. It, it, it's the promise that though we're the ones that messed it up, we're the problem, Paul says, what a wretched man I am. And that we can't save ourselves. There's nothing we can do. There's, there's no law that we can keep. There's no good deed that we can do. There's no cause that's, that's enough for us to be able to become acceptable to God. Paul says, who will save me from this body of death? I can't save myself. You can't save yourself. God comes along through his son and he saves us. He, he, he takes our place on the cross. He gives us the righteousness that only Christ deserved and that we did not deserve. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that's the hope that we have. Because just like Jesus was raised. We are going to be raised. We are going to be partakers of the resurrection. I said I was going to talk to those of you that don't know Christ, and, and I have to ask you, not in a condescending way. It's in a way that, that I truly understand because I, I lived without Christ for my first 27 years. And I never stopped to reckon until Jackie started to ask me this question very pointedly, my wife. What's your hope in? Is it really in your career? Is it really in money? She said, I hope it's not in me because I'm not your savior. If you don't know Christ, what are you putting your hope in? Do you, do you realize that whatever it is that you're putting your hope in is perishing just like you are? How do you get through life without this hope? How do you get through life without this truth? Where is your hope apart from this future glory? Let's pray. Josh is going to come and lead us in our time of response. God, we thank you for this truth. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will open the hearts and minds of everybody here to this through your word, through your power. God, I pray that we would be able to apply this to our lives. I pray that we would live in the hope that you've given us through your Son. And God, that we would have the joy of that hope in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.